we are the to coin the the phrase from uh, farmers for climate action we are the canaries in the coal mine this next 12 months should be about you know farmer representatives putting themselves on the, the top of the barricade on this issue welcome to nourishing matters to chew on a podcast that takes its cue from big picture healthy and sustainable food system agendas and digs in to explore their implications and how they are landing here in australia I'm Anthea Fawcett, founder of Foodswell, sustainability advocate and a farmer's daughter from New South Wales. Join me on a weekly journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable, fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. I'm speaking with Richard Bootle, a friend and farmer from Ningen who wears many professional and other hats, who has degrees he might prefer me not to mention, but that do include degrees in agricultural economics and law, as well as a not-too-shabby repertoire in drama and other performance that he's also studied along the way. Oh, when we were young, a very warm welcome and thank you, Rich, for joining me in conversation for Nourishing Matters and for humouring me on that intro. Thank you. Thanks, Hans. Good to, good to be here, <laughs> I think. I will be able to answer that more fully at the end, won't I? Uh, but yes, it is lovely to see you and be talking to you. Yes, yes. Uh, how are you? How are Ian, Jill and all of the family? Um, oh, look, I, I just, I think it's it's a terrible thing to say in the context, but 2020 was was a magnificent year for us. Um, you know, it's it was a relatively magnificent year, and you know, in, in absolute terms as well. For after three really horrible years of drought, um, you know, we got this almost a year ago, or exactly a year ago, you know, we started getting rainfall that just seemingly never ended last year for us, um, and it sort of transformed. It transformed the farm. It transformed us. I think what we didn't realize, and it's only afterwards, I think, that I think we were just depressed for a long time. So, you know, just obviously Ian and Jill and myself, so my mom and my partner Ian, um, but also, you know, just uh, you don't realize until you're at the other side that, that we just weren't really, like we had happy moments, of course, you always do. But just this general sense, like those afternoon storms and especially the couple that actually hit us that were so big, dust storms so big and so dense that with there was no light. It was pitch black at four in the afternoon. My mum, who's almost 100 and she'll kill me for saying that, um, had never seen anything like that in her lifetime. And so, you know, you, everyone... The naysayers that 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 don't believe in climate change and talk about this as just you know being parts of the the, the flooding rains and droughts and flooding rains, it's just nonsense, absolute nonsense. What we were experiencing was the first of the climate change droughts, and and it was it was frightening. It was genuinely frightening and depressing, obviously. But yeah, it's a good happy times now. Yes, dust storms. So, Richard, when I heard that another Haboob-style dust storm, like those common in the Middle East, hit Western New South Wales again this January, notwithstanding really good rains across much of New South Wales, I thought, wow, things really aren't back to normal, are they? Indeed, what does the new normal for large broadacre farmers out west look and feel like even now? 
especially weird after the relief of such a good season as you've just... What were your immediate thoughts and how did you feel when the most recent big storm hit again? Well, I mean, we were fortunate. Yes, we, we did get some dust there for, a, a you know, half a day. Or a, But, I mean, it was it was... It wasn't even, you know, it was a couple of hours and it was nothing like it was. And it was pretty much what we, what you expect over time after, a, you know, a month or so without much rain, which is what we all had in the, in the in sort of Western New South Wales. But, but I, I mean, it, of course, it is the reminder that, that things, as good as things are, that, that what we have to do is, is look forward and, and make some decisions about how we farm and, and how we you know, manage at least, no matter what we do now, we are looking at down the barrel of some you know, climate change inspired increases in, in global temperature. Like there's that, that no matter what we do today, that, that's the reality of where we live. So I guess twofold one is, you know, we need to be trying to limit what they are, um, but also, you know, I, what does broad acre farming look like out here? I mean, I think the reality is we always had, you know, two good years, um, two average years, and and one bad year. That was kind of what, I, you know, my dad and grandfather would, we've been here over a hundred years. That's kind of what what we were working on. Um, but I, I mean, I think the reality is is that that we're going to have to work with different numbers. And exactly what those numbers are, I don't I don't think anyone knows. But but we know that that mix is going to be more bad years. Um, and so, you know, that, that requires, for me, it's been a, an a adjustment and for our family, like the amount of what we farm versus what we graze and those sorts of things. What, what are we going to do differently? 2019 marked the peak of what was one of the most severe protracted and widespread droughts that Australia has experienced that then rolled on into bushfires that saw millions of hectares and some 3 billion wild and farm animals scorched and now COVID. Unprecedented times indeed in which the need to reset, rethink and plan for greater resilience seems to be everyone's new normal, but especially so for people such as you on the land. Richard, you live and farm at Claremont near Ningen on the beautiful Bogan River in western New South Wales between Dubbo and Burke. Before digging in to talk further about the drought, its impacts, your future plans and more, can you tell us about your farm, what you grow and raise, the sort of mix and scale of what you currently do and how long you're family has been farming in the region? Um, that's a lot of questions, isn't it? It is, yes. Um, <laughs> so start, start at the back and work forward. Uh, so uh, Grandpa came out here. Um, they, were, they were in Parramatta originally uh, when Parramatta were farms, uh, and then they came out out west and had you know, quite large land holdings here in, in various partnerships. Yeah, we, we've been here for you know, 100 years. A lot of that sort of two sides of the family. One side were graziers, so we all you know, Mullingudry was, uh, was a shorthorn and a merino stud. It was one of the first pole merino studs. Mum's family and dad's family were were farmers, uh, you know, peasant farmers, and from a grazier point of view. Uh, so, so I guess I've, I've a crossbred in in that sense, uh, and maybe an aspirational grazier deep down that I always wanted that. But we were certainly farming has been the you know what what's driven um, our agricultural production over my lifetime. And you know, my dad was someone that in a in a pioneering kind of way grew grew wheat and other winter crops out here at a time when most people didn't. Obviously, part of that was land clearing. Um, so he did a lot of land clearing at, at, 
a long time ago. Um, what I am thankful for uh, is is that you know he's very much focused on on having connect the landscape connection. So there's lots of lot, large tree lines always connecting to then paddocks that we didn't clear, and then we've got you know um, cleared paddocks that we that we crop on. So the predominant crop then is wheat, a mix of wheat, canola, chickpeas, barley, and oats, and we might go up to sort of. 8,000 hectares of, of winter winter crop and then the the rest of the farm is uh, is native native pasture and uh, it's been interesting one of the projects sort of 10 years ago we have a new uh, land management course comes each year and I do a presentation in uh, in September August September each year and uh, they started sort of asking me about climate change a long time ago probably 15 16 20 years ago uh, and originally, to my shame, I was one of those farmers who was like, oh, climate change, you know, it's all a bit, I don't really know about it. And I just said just really dumb things. Um, and one of the guys was really, really nice and just started sending me a whole lot of earlier material on, you know, on that move where it went from modelling climate change to actually the beginnings of actually the evidence that, you know, climate change has was occurring. And fortunately, I, I read and got educated. And, and then what we did sort of as a family, we sat down and, well, what does this mean for us? And obviously what that meant was that, you know, that, that we were going to need to be more resilient. That wasn't probably the words that I used at the time, but it was that we needed to do things that could survive longer dry periods of time. Um, and one of the keys to that was getting ground cover and in particular native grass for us, windmill grass, um, one of the sort of the major grass species out in the on the plains here. So what what we've done, and I actually only worked this out for a, a biodiversity survey the other day, we've done uh, 8,000 acres of, uh, have uh, been transformed from farming to the grasslands now in the last few years. So it's been a good change. And Richard, just quickly, you do still have stock? Yeah, so we normally run about 1,000 cows. Uh, they've been Herif- Herifords. Um, over the over the years, we have a Hereford stud and and a smaller portion, obviously, of the herd. But during the drought, we got down to we have about 400, 500 cows now. Obviously, young heifers. We've got two hundred and fifty heifers that are calving out for the next four months. Or so. then we've brought in the ak- akushi, uh, which are all red wagyu's. Um, uh, is is what we've substituted. We used to use Angus on the heifers, um, and then you know, I was looking around for something something better different um you know things that would focus more on taste and marbling and um yeah it came across the, the red wagyu's the more we looked into it now we've purchased a stud on that so we'll have the hereford stud and the akaushi stud and you know the, the cross between those we're going to call the, the bogan reds the red wagyu's and the red herefords so that's that's going to be sort of going forward is going to be my cattle enterprise Richard, it's um, such big open country with such distinctive lands, waters and wildlife where you live. Um, and it also has a big colonial history too, located as it is at the meeting place of three Aboriginal nations that saw a lot of frontier conflict. Uh, that story is perhaps for another episode or is or series. It would be a very long episode and I would certainly want uh, lots of representatives uh, of uh, you know, the local people for that. Yeah, that's right. But here and now, can you tell us about a few of the things that you 
personally most love about the place, the landscape that is your farm, your home? We're incredibly lucky to live on the uh, mighty Bogan River, um, which is in front of in front of our house is uh, nearly 100 metres wide, um, and has a whole series of islands in the in what is weird for both Ningen Town and Cobar Waterboard. Cobar pumps from there to their storages, keeps all the mines going, and obviously the towns of Cobar. Hermadale and Ningen, um, and that's you know we're very fortunate to be there, um, and I just just love that space, and that was one of the main reasons about getting farming away from the riverine environment, and you know most of the sort of two thousand three thousand hectares that we've put in and native grass has been around the weir pool. There's now you know a lot of trees going back over what was. Former, former clear, but we're, we're going to keep it into that sort of grassland state that the earlier survey said, so isolated trees. So that then brings with it an incredible diversity of birds and, and mammals um, and, and bats. We've had lots of bat surveys recently. Uh, frogs, uh, uh, you know, that's, that's my, my central love at the moment is identifying all frog calls. So this massive, amazing environment ecosystem plus then you know the the joys of you know of running the farm and actually having that 1870s homestead and very established garden and that sort of sprawls out for way too many acres now but but yeah that's that's the the love of it is is the combination you've just had such a good harvest after such tough years can you tell us about that? How did it feel and go? What were some of the highlights and perhaps particularly in terms of particular crops or paddocks that bounced back really well after the drought and perhaps surprised you? I'm thinking perhaps of Bill's paddock. What, what I was terrified, obviously we got massive rain in, in February, March, which then meant I, I having said we weren't going to crop, I'd actually go, you know, lots of talk during the drought, I'm never going to crop again, we're going to just be graziers blah, 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 we then get this massive, massive rain event and you just say, actually, this is one of those years where you can, you know, actually get in and, and get great crop yields. So we did that up to yeah, nearly 8,000 hectares. The, the paranoia through, so lot, lots of urea on, on top to maximise yields and, and, and weed control and by all the sort of things to make sure that that was a year that paid. Uh, but I was also conscious the whole time I was traumatised by the, by the thought of... Uh, that it was going to be a wet harvest because most years that we get like this, then, you know, not unreasonably if it's rained all year, then it does actually rain all year, including harvest. A month before harvest, they they then absolutely predicted the the La Nina was a locked-in event and that it would be, you know, this massively wet. So so one of the key focus was getting, uh, you know, harvest contractors that could come in with with massive headers. At some stage, we had uh, seven headers going at once to try and get through. So it was a very short harvest, notwithstanding it was one of the largest we'd had for at least, you know, seven or eight years. So, so normally we're used to sort of a three months, right? We have enough feed for six months, but the most we've ever fed is three, three to four months. Um, but what happened in the drought, obviously, is that that kept going and going and going. Um, and so probably six months in, realised this is not normal. This is not going to be just the normal. So we pulled all cattle from all our other other farms as well to probably four paddocks around the house paddock at home and then just fed them intensively there. Um, but, you know, some of, some of, and that meant in general we preserved that topsoil. Mm. There weren't hooves jumping across it all the time. But still, if it's some of those dust storms, that there were some paddocks that got knocked around, and um, and then to have, 
you know, in Bill's paddock, for instance, which was my dad's favorite paddock because it was always the one he used to win the cock competitions in the days of cock competitions. And it, he loved beating, you know, Dubbo and Wellington areas with, you know, from Ningden because we were always seen as sort of marginal in inverted commas. He loved going better cops than them. And that was his favorite paddock. And this year was an absolute smasher. So, um, yeah, no, it, was a, it was a lovely thing. Oh, that's that's a beautiful thing to celebrate and uh, enjoy. Um, so you've just spoken about how you had to really plan up and bulk up to get a, crew, a large crew on site for a really intensive period. I was wondering about COVID and how that impacted on your workforce planning and who you could access. Was that fairly straightforward? It was okay? Oh, look, we're, we're lucky. Uh, we've had a lot of backpackers over the years. Um, and so I've got a good profile in the Facebook backpacking group. Uh, and and that, that means that when I put an ad up, there's always two or three backpackers who worked for us in the past that are wherever they are now in the world saying, oh, you know, it was really nice working there. Um, and so that was lovely. And through that, you know, we, we had uh, one backpacker through the really tight times so of sort of mid-year last year. Um, and and then an extra backpacker that came along for Harvest who's still with us now. But But I was very conscious that what we needed was a team of harvesters and they had to come with people and a lot of harvest teams rely on backpacker labor so i just put an ad in the national papers in the land land and the weekly times and those sort of in various states to just try and advertise for someone and that was part of my criteria is are you employing locals or are you you know, do you normally get backpackers? So, so they came the big problem was we, we weren't sure we could get them across of it so they're a victorian team um um, BB harvesting, um, and you know they were great, um, but but at one point we were worried we weren't going to be able to get them across the border. But fortunately, you know the timings of of uh, the various governments got their act together to get them across in, in time. Fantastic. So um, you spoke earlier about how you and your dad rule of thumb planned good years and bad years. Uh, just a few questions around that. How how well does a year like you've just had set you up for the year or years ahead? Or with a different sort of lens, how many years of drought does a good year like you've just had make up for or put into balance? In a in a in a normal drought, it, it was just very much a part of what we do. And there are years where, for the most part, in in a drought year, we didn't we just don't make money. We don't lose money in drought years. We just don't make any. Um, we eat the feed that we have on store. So you know that, that the. If you accounted for things properly, you know, you'd probably make a loss for those, but everyone's forgotten how much was, was down in that shed anyway. Um, but the reality, the, the difference between this and the sort of the climate change droughts and, and what we're seeing is, you know, that in that three years, I had to buy in feed, which we've not had to do. And there was no one, no one anywhere, I don't think that, that, uh, you know, that ran a mixed operation that wasn't buying in. You have severe losses in those years. A year like we've just had, you know, really, really sets you up. It will set me up for, you know, the next four or five normal years. Um, and, and in that, if I get another good year this year, then that's fantastic. We can upgrade some infrastructure and, uh, you know, do some things, might even you know, buy another farm or something like there's some things that we can do if you get a second great year in a row. But but if it's just normal years from now, then you know that that I think it sets everyone in you know the central west, probably all across New South Wales. Last year, you get a bit of a reset year, um, and I think it just just a massive relief for a lot of people. 
that, you know, that it would have been very close to the point where banks started knocking on doors. I don't know what percentage of people across the state and you know, across all of Australia, rural Australia, but there must have been a massive number of properties that banks were just looking at, just going, well, this is your last chance. And I certainly heard from our bank managers saying that, you know, that there was a lot of people that were in that, you know, get a crop this year or not. It should set us up for, for years years to come is is hopefully my answer. But then what does what does climate change look like um, for us? Uh, and that's the that's the scary thing is that is this you know my dad always had his phrase was was that you know after a really bad drought you'd always get two maybe three good years. So I didn't actually store much hay last year because I worked on the basis that we'd get a good year this year. And if you think about La Nina and ocean warming and temperature, the times it takes for those changes, then it, it probably makes sense that we should get at least two good years um, before oceans start changing back and, the, and, and um, um, the Southern Oscillation Index flicks around. So if, you know, if, we can get, if I can get the second good year, um, at, then, you know, then that's going to be, it's going to really carry us forward for, for years ahead. But what is that going to look like? Uh, is that, does that then go straight back into another three year drought? Uh, does that, what, you know, we just don't know enough. We know that it's going to be worse. We know it's going to be hotter. We know it's going to be stormier. The exact, um, even the best models are, are you know, very wide ranging in, in their possibilities. So all I'm looking at is making sure we've got a lot of feed stored, we've buried you know, thousands and tons of grain, thousands of tons um, of di different grains, and, and a little bit of silage from last year, but certainly this coming year, if we you know, intend to, to bury then a lot of hay as well. So what I'm working on is, is a three-year, three-and-a-half-year uh, feed for the thousand cattle, and it's kind of interesting because the economics of that in the past, if you think if you think about the net present value of, of money, then if you bury that amount of money and there's twelve percent, fourteen percent, even eight percent interest, you know that then becomes very expensive feed if it stays in the ground for five or six years. But and in some, you know, we kind of thought, well, we won't get a drought like this for another ten years, and at that interest rate, then you you know the economics of burying is is not great. But on the economics of very low cost money in the environment that, we, that we're in and the prospect that droughts will come more frequently, then burying has become for us uh, I mean, it's going to be the mainstay of our operations going forward. And I suspect that the crop, in, at least in New South Wales, was way bigger than what the forecasters think it is because I, I, you know, the, there are a lot of farms that look like the Valley of the Kings around here. Amazing. Yeah. So it's, a, it's just like a whole new way of planning and stock taking for the future, not, not in the bank, but in the ground. Um, so, so the balance is shifting and it's ever more precarious. So he's hoping for at least two or three good years ahead, but you just don't know, do you? Um, looking, looking back now to the recent drought and its impact on your farming operations with your hard-earned insights and uh, wisdom about resilience and future-proofing, what, if anything, were you able to grow or crop during the drought? Was it pretty much nothing? No, we, we couldn't we couldn't establish anything. I uh, you know we'd farmed every year for on the farming side of the family every year for a hundred years, uh, and then we didn't farm for two years. I just didn't plant nothing. Wow. So we're twenty twenty one, aren't we? Sorry. So it was it was eighteen nineteen and nineteen twenty. We didn't plant a crop at all in in those in those years. 
because there was no subsoil moisture and there was no rainfall even at, at, at what would be a, a reasonable planting time. We, we had friends and neighbours that did, people that were more optimistic, but, but I just couldn't see optimism on all the forecasting models and, and what was in the ground just meant that there was nothing. You just couldn't plant anything. We got some storms from time to time. We didn't get no rainfall, but all those storms, what, what, what that allowed was it kept the grass. And that was the amazing thing for me was you know that that come came February March last year after the we got uh, what did we get three hundred mil or something over that period of time we had paddocks filled with grass and loosen coming up and you just think wow that's just amazing that you know that the ground could you know that there was just enough rain to keep those things going and just how how resilient that that especially the native grasses but also some of the loosen standing that it could yeah you know, that it could stay alive and obviously we didn't graze it much during it. we waited for it to die each time after each rain before we grazed it because you wanted to make sure it put as much as much sugar back into its root system as possible so it's partly always listens always about management and what about land care or biodiversity sort of action that you could take during that time i suppose you could clean things up no no tree planting i suppose lots of fencing <laughs> uh, we did we did we did a gate a, a redo of our gates and and uh and some fencing but but also i put off like we would normally have three full-time uh labor staff uh, on the farm ended up with only one person over that time and and Stephen and um ian and i uh you know and, and jill we, we just fed every day mostly all day every day was was our was our routine there wasn't actually a lot of time for doing anything else uh just you know maintaining those stock and the the lovely thing was that uh, you know we've had a, an unaffected carving through that you know the, the year following the, the the droughts and during the droughts which was during the drought was a nightmare you're just going stop carving stop carving i don't want you to have any more calves um but then it was lovely obviously that uh you know that that after the drought ended as well you know we a month into the, the beautiful pasture we had the young calves on foot so to keep the cows uh, ovulating during a drought you know just was was obviously our key was was to not not lose all our our stock you know just the the generations and generations of selection our herefords have been chosen for lots of, of criteria but but being quiet and being able to walk up to them anywhere has been one of the things that we really loved and that was partly having old older parents as we both do and uh, you know that that you want to you know you want your parents to be safe all the time um, and um, yeah it's just been a lovely thing so and you mentioned earlier that your your, your herd sort of was more than halved, but you're well on the way to stocking it up again. And what about the impacts on local biodiversity, native plants and animals? I was at the um, National NRM conference in November 2019, which was held during the storm of drought and, and bushfire. And that usually quite conservative forum declared an environmental emergency and issued a call to action to urgently address soil degradation, biodiversity loss, and more. The bush, the bushfires have very visibly been devastating to biodiversity, but less visible, but some say as if not much more dramatic, has been the impact of prolonged drought on species loss. Would you like to comment on that? Any observations about what you've seen lost and perhaps surprisingly reappear? I think one of the interesting things being in a being in a permanent water space, even during the drought, you know, the Burundung got as low as it 
where 1% or 2% or whatever, it was incredibly low. But because we were critical human needs, the weir pool at Ningen was maintained the, the entire time at obviously much lower levels than normal. But what that meant was that we're a massive oasis and we have a, a great diversity of bird life that, you know, at the best of times. But, uh, you know, just the sheer volumes of um, things like, you know, we, hit, we had a plague of little grebe, Australasian grebes, um, just obviously all the dams around dried out where they would normally live. And when I say plague, I don't mean it was a bad thing. There was just, just you know, tens of thousands of, of grebes. Um, and, and we just became this great refugia, which is, I suppose, one of those key things about when we're, when we're looking at, at landscape, um, making sure that you've got places like this that you know that become the the zoo for the for all around. One of the other things during the drought is that we had fisheries come and um, and that we have uh, olive perchlet, which is one of the most endangered uh, fish in Australia, and we've had the last remaining sort of natural uh, spot for the northern western form that 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 lives out here and. Uh, and so we had the, the fisheries guys coming along and it was fascinating to watch. I think they caught 300, um, 300 or 400 over a four or five day period in various traps and things. And they went off then to the Ark in uh, Narendra. So that made me feel great about where we are. What I saw as well was that the, the normal run of birds that would be coming through, uh, sort of wood swallows and those sorts of birds that might normally come, they didn't come. The, the the more nomadic ones decided that obviously just to skip the whole, you know, the whole of New South Wales, Western New South Wales, or wherever their range normally was. And I imagine there were places along the coast where you know they were more concentrated. But then with bushfires, there, there were some good things. But the the amazing thing as well was after the rain, the just the sheer amount of what we call you know our good time friends, the the species that only come and and the wood swallows are, are one of them just you know that and budgerigars we have flocks of 10 to twenty thousand budgerigars that have now bred i think four times in the last 12 months here and then you just you know that the whole paddock lifts and it's an extraordinary thing so the stuff like that like the the resilience of natives of you know of native native plants native birds that can move are okay what happens to you know that things that are much slower the mammals and bats and things that you know that don't have the range i think that's where the you know the big species lost what what i thought was amazing during the drought and the thing that really struck out to me was pines that we have you know 100 year old pine pine uh, tree lines uh the pines died uh we had bimble box uh where where they seemingly died um, and what we're getting is epicormic shoots on them um, that have come back. So it looks like there was a fire through parts of the farm um, because of the epicormic shoots coming out. Um, and that was lovely to see that come back. And that certainly happened in probably 80 or 90%, probably the same proportion in, you know, as a bushfire in, in some of those zones. I guess when a 120-year-old pine tree dies uh, that has lived there for you know, for that long and survived the doubt, you know that this isn't normal, like we're beyond normal and that the oscillations of drought and flood, you know, that, that we're, we're, pushing, we're pushing the environment uh, yeah, out of where it can cope. And some, of, and some of those species you've mentioned are key feedstocks for some of the older, larger birds like the black glossy cockatoos. Yeah, they're along the Macquarie Moor. We actually don't get them where we are, but, you know, there's, there's still things like, you know, that, that the 
busted and brogas and the other things that sort of that came came into us um and you know lots of the uh lots of the raptors as well that that you know have uh, starting to get in that critical zone and it's, it's lovely seeing them you um spoke earlier about how burying seed and silage and is is actually a big part of your planning for going forward are there other things you'd like to um describe or tell us about that you've been doing that you that your father would not have done the move the move to uh no-till agriculture has meant that we have been able to get crops in in at times and in years where my father or grandfather or great-grandfather wouldn't have been able to uh get crops uh from uh, in a tillage practice um because you know you're, you're just storing a higher percentage um, especially with you know as you build mulch cover in that sort of system um, and that's been that's been one of the things, and it's also enabled us to do you know larger scale at lower cost as well that we we couldn't do. I think it's the it's the mix what it, where, how we saw ourselves as as predominant croppers to probably moving forward to predominantly uh, a cattle uh, enterprise. Um, and and if I liked sheep, I would probably be you know moving to uh, sensibly uh, like you know, my cousins uh, into into merinos or or dorpers. But I, I just sheep really annoy me. <laughs> so I just I don't know. There's just something lovely about cattle that I don't get from sheep. So that's that's a personal choice. But I'm sure you know. I, I see locally, you know, a massive move away from from cropping and 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 fat lambs towards more um, you know dorpers um, and you know actually back to some more sort of resilient merino native pasture is something that I think we'll probably increasingly see. Which will be interesting to see about, you know, how that impacts on food price and production and all the sort of sorts of things like what what how that balances over time. So quite a few cropped previously cropped paddocks going back to to, to pasture and and mixed native and introduced grasses for for stock increasingly. Yeah, look, I don't even have the the introduced grass, so, but because we had the riverine environment, you know, we had the mix that that did best, uh, and that moves out about a kilometre. Two kilometres a year, um, so that just naturally just eats up cropping paddocks as it as it blows out further west each year. So all all we do is so just on that is I we do, we put glyphosate across in winter, uh, just a dose of glyphosate to uh, take out all the uh, things like saffron thistle, all the introduced winter weeds, um, and the brassicaceae, all the sort of things that would compete. So that takes out and then that stores moisture a bit like we store summer rainfall for winter crop in our grass paddocks we we store winter rainfall um because the grasses are dormant at that stage and then that then brings enables us to have grass productive grass pasture at least through till december even if we don't get rain and actually then taking out things like galvanized burr and and roll green roller like all the kind of those classic sort of western weeds actually taking them out of your system is something that that's been an aim in the last 12 months so we've almost completely taken that out that's fantastic and what about on and off farm resilience in your region i know ningen's home to a very large solar farm we supplied the water to to build the solar farm at ningen um but we we also have other solar farm projects uh on on our on our existing farm um, but the solar farm they can't go ahead because there's infrastructure and we need an infrastructure upgrade to you know upgrade the lines from from Ningen to east um and you know it's been disappointing to see you know a, a zone designated as the 
as the uh, renewables zone, which doesn't include us, um, where you know that would have been in really obvious land use, and and there wouldn't be undercurrent of don't take our productive farmland for for solar or, or for wind uh, in this region as well. We'd just be more than happy to actually have some some more solar there. So on a personal level, where we've got our plans to put in our own solar, wanting to move as much as we can into that space. Uh, our next irrigation upgrade will be predominantly solar driven as well. So that's, that's, that's sort of the, the midterm project. If I get another good year this year, we can bring that, bring that, that spend forward. I can see at the beginnings, what we all hoping for is, you know, that there's a hydrogen solution for tractors and that we can move out of diesel. In the meantime, you know, just to people listening that aren't farmers, you know, what we need to be able to keep some fossil fuel for that really heavy machinery that we require to produce. You know, what we still need to do is get it out of everything else. Like, you don't need it in your cars now. Get out of petrol and cars. Get out of <laughs> petrol for electricity and coal for electricity. Like, do as much as we can now and save the last of our, you know, of our net, if you like, is is we've got to keep in, in heavy machinery. But And for really strategic purposes, yeah. For really strategic, for the things that you can't do anything else with until we until we do, and I don't think we're far from, you know, lots of sort of conversations and looking at the latest research, we will get tractors that that can be, you know, that completely renewables, but you know that that's the that that's the that's the nirvana. That's where I want to head to is to be, you know, is you know aim for five years from now where you know that we're we're close to as close as we can to be you know carbon neutral um there's you know that there's lots of issues around cattle and and methane um and that's that's something that you know maybe as a farm you know we're, we're using carbon storage as an offset on mm. and animals in the landscape get a lot of carbon back into the soil too so yeah i think i think the, i think the jury's out on methane and, and cattle production it's, it's going to be a really interesting space as as much more focus will be on that in the in the coming years Thanks for that. Um, looking back and perhaps forwards even more now, what do you what do you feel or what do you see as the greatest challenges or threats to large broadacre family farmers such as yourself and perhaps agriculture more generally? We are the to coin the the phrase from uh, farmers for climate action. We are the canaries in the coal mine, um, and you know it's it's hitting us first and where where we are particularly you know west of the bogan uh where we are the ultimate canary in the coal mine we are going to see we already see climate change is going to be impacting on us first i find it frustrating that 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 we aren't you know on the barricades as farmers uh and it, it's frustrating to me that you know that, that our political representatives party which was the country party and that should be a farmers party is has been captured in some ways by the coal lobby um and you know fossil fuel in general um you know matt canavan you know just so so connected um and and that's he's not an isolated example of that so i find that incredibly frustrating and i also don't want to be disloyal because as a farmer you know i'm conscious of you know my family's connection with the party over you know generations and but the reality is at some point is you just have to say hey either start representing us on what is our greatest existential crisis what is going to be the single thing that that's 
that keeps me up at, at night. It's just still just the level of ignorance or Sky News-based propaganda that, that spills out of people who should know better as mouth. Sometimes I find very frustrating to be told by some of the friends that we went to school or university with that, you know, that I'm a, that I'm a left winger. You just think, well, where does that put that person in the spectrum if a relatively conservative farmer is your left winger? You just think, actually, this is wrong. But groups like uh, Farmers for Climate Action, I mean, they, they've come from a small base a few years ago and they've got such a big following now and they're very involved with um, lots of women sort of independents who I think are responding to what you've just said about uh, mainstream rural politics. Yeah, no, they're great. They're fantastic and I'm a member of them and absolutely 100% support them. But they're, they're, not, they're not mainstream in, in, in farmers' political representations yet and that's, the, that's, that's what I think that, that's the, the 12 months for me, this next 12 months should be about about uh, you know, farmer representatives putting themselves on the, the top of the barricade on this issue. And if they don't, then they'll find themselves replaced by you know, some of the vicious shooters, like some of those sort of things. Like that, that should have been a real wake-up call to the National Party. And reports like uh, foot off the gas about land use mining gas and farming conflict and the mental health impacts on rural communities and, and farmers and individuals has... I think that's going to get a lot of traction with independence and the public discussion heading heading forward. What about um, the Commonwealth Government and the National Farmers Federation's plans for 2030 to hit 100 billion agricultural exports by 2030? Do you think that's realistic in terms of natural capital, water and climate change? Oh, that's a question. Um, do I think that's realistic? It's a bit business as usual though, isn't it? I know lots of innovation can increase farm gate output but is it is it realistic in terms of our landscapes and natural capital i don't mind having that having that that as a goal um but what we need to do is we need to be really clever about how we achieve that and so you know you think about um you know that i always have a thousand things in the head of the sort of projects that you like to do fish farming or or using we've got saline bores here and and being able to bring the water up and growing saltwater fish or you know abalone or so I, I don't know so we are incredibly lucky as australians you know we have this massive overabundance of natural resources it's completely achievable to do that but not in the sense of of pumping more fertilizer on particular paddocks like that that's not you know it's, it can't be business as, as usual but it can certainly be like that, those sorts of aspirations should then be used to to encourage innovation in that and i i i say that and even as i say it i hear another you know another uh, sports rorts program you know where where money is channeled to people that are connected to a particular party. And that's not what I don't want to see. When I say about encouraging innovation, I want actual innovation because, you know, we, we have, um, you know, high-speed hubs to, you know, internet so that, you know, that people can, can I mean, one of the great things for, for me, and I'm putting, you know, one of my other hats on a bit in this, in this comment is, you know, have other businesses that aren't farm. What I, what I have loved about 2020, what it stopped me having to, go endlessly and on planes to endless meetings across Australia and New Zealand for business. Um, and what it's enabled us is to have discussions like this via Zoom. And, and where we used to spend, I was probably at least half my year on a plane and traveling. And my carbon footprint was, uh, was appalling, even paying for offset. What, what I've got now is that when people say, oh, they want to be our partner and they want to meet, I just go, I don't do 
I don't do physical meetings. You know, as part of our law firm and in the Rundle software, it's it's about being able to deliver services from wherever I am and wherever you are. And that I would love to see as we haven't, I don't think we've actually got there in our heads yet that that cities don't need, aren't going to be or don't have to be what they've been in the past. And that our level of, of just comfort with, with this as a form of communication, digital signatures and as a lawyer now, the amount that I can do for clients without actually ever seeing them. That's that's the exciting thing. So then that actually then takes people away from that, so that we can we can put people in more interesting, more more natural locations, and and for them to you know to live sustainably in that in those spaces. Great for for rural and for rural regions and towns and um, uh, reanimating country towns and coastal towns, and that's happening already. It's it's pretty exciting, isn't it? It is. Even Ningen is, is, you know, it's really just the, it's the, 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 you know, what it looks like now compared to what it looked like 20 years ago. Is, is yeah, and it's on the road to Broken Hill. I think you've had lots of visitors, haven't you, during COVID? <laughs> it's been interesting uh, when you when you clip uh, when you clip middle class people's European holidays where, where they're forced to travel. It's been lovely. So just really quickly, what might be some of the greatest big picture opportunities for broadacre farmers such as yourself and communities going forward? Obviously, mi- mixed economic activity, more local and regional food economies, carbon farming. <laughs> <laughs> yes, all, all those things. I, I think one of the one of the the things though that stem from that is that. If people don't need to be crowded in cities and if they don't want to be, COVID isn't over this year. I just, I just don't think COVID's over this year. Um, so, but, but what it's also getting is, is not the need to be squashed up into one, one bit. And so from that, then stems all the opportunities of business opportunities around that. Then, then people can have enough solar panels because they have, you know, a house that they can have it on, or so many opportunities associated with with that, which was, you know, the, the sort of decentralisation sort of hope of the 70s and 80s, which never materialised. There was there was an aspiration to it, but no, none of the technology that enabled it. And that's what we that's what we have, and that's where government really needs to invest in in getting you know, really good internet. Um, connections uh, across, you know, into remote locations so that people can actually have a quality of life and, and interact, but also the, all the businesses around that. And then there's micro solar. They, I know there's, there's lots of proposals for Ningen itself. And so all, all country towns will have their own solar grid. And, the, you know, so they will be, t- towns will become more sustainable, much more fast than, than government. So the interesting thing is that, you know, that government is lagging all this, you know, business and, and communities are, are leading the charge in, in all of this and, and want the net, the net zero as, as much sooner than what government does. And in the sustainable food space, that's very much the case. I mean, COVID's changed the conversation around local and regional food economies and supply chains in a way that we would never have expected. Hmm. Exactly, and we've got like there's a, there's a there's a willingness to embrace Australian food as well. Like there's just so many interesting natives that 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 we that grow naturally here that we can all start eating um, and you know move away from. I won't name any particular commodity because there's always a, a, someone, but but you know that the, the stuff that we can grow and eat and and produce sustainably and locally, uh, and I think that's you know you will see the sort of the Chinese market gardens of the of the previous hundred years where that particular market garden associated with the town supplied everyone's vegetables. Um, you know I think that we're going to start seeing some of that happening as well. But but that again needs disruption of you know bring back a tax base to Australia, bring back regional and local 
yeah, and that that you know we can trade, we can use the internet, but we can then barter between ourselves in a local town. Oh, well-being economy, Rich. <laughs> yeah, we, I could distract you in this conversation all day. I've already indicated that in the future, you, your your farming operations will be uh, oriented towards stock and less farming, less cropping. Um, looking back from 10 years on, I was going to ask, will you still be farming and what, what might it look like? And it sounds as like you will still be there. Would you like to elaborate on what you think your farming operations might look like in 10 years' time? Anything further to what you've already said? The interesting thing, and, and I'm, a, I'm a terrible mechanic, I'm, you know, the worst mechanic in the world, but I am actually generally excited about what the machines and the, the, what we use to farm that that's going to be the, the fascinating thing, you know. I'm getting a drone now, and it, we're doing a bit of a house right now, and the, the, there'll be a drone landing space in the upstairs, so the drone can come and land there, and then go off and do it, do it, do its checking. Um, you know, troughs are going to have you know sensors on it, fencing and gates are going to going to have changed. The most important thing for me in whatever broadacre, we'll always do some broadacre farming, and. And you know the tractors that do that. There's going to be some great tech gains that, and I think that will be the thing that will change the most in the ten years. I, I think also I'd love to think that that you know what we actually grow will have changed as well. Like you know it'd be nice to see that I'm growing a you know, a, a perennial native of some sort rather than you know wheat year in year out, and that everyone you know wants that particular thing. Australian's palate is changing massively. What what I want to do in terms of our akushis and and having the bogan reds, you know, what what I want them to be is something where we have cameras in our paddocks so people can see them. Um, if we're going to eat meat, then I think it's really important that 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 meat has a nice life. I want the cattle to have lived range free. I want them to have had a nice life, and have, I think we should move away from. In really intensive farming. I don't think animals should be trapped in cages. Moving from a, a black wagyu that needs you know, 300 days on feed, um, or four or 500 days on feed in a feedlot, to you know the red wagyus that that you know can get not as high marbling, but but still great taste, and do that on grass fed in 18 months. Like that, those sorts of things. That's that's where I want to see. I, I want to see the. Farms and not just my farm, but all farms. You think about the challenges of non-meat meat, but I understand the appeal to a consumer where they say, "Well, nothing has suffered in the growing of of this steak, this this plastic steak, whatever." As farmers, get get in front of that particular story and say, "You know, yes, you're eating meat, but no, you know, someone hasn't suffered it to produce that amazing, delicious." Sake. Know where it came from, how it was produced, and it was a, and it was a an animal that was appropriate for its context and place, which is exactly what you're saying about the the red Angus. Hmm. How do you feel? Do you feel ready and able emotionally, financially, knowledge wise, to go through another drought in the next few years if you had to? Look, we're going to have to go through another drought. You know, I, I'm I'm banking on it being not next year but the year after as as you know that's the latest that i'm hoping for i'm hoping to get through this year as another good year in inverted commas and i'm hoping that the year after will be okay um but, but presumably by then you know that the that we're going to go from la nina to an el nino sort of cycle of some sort and that that'll be exacerbated by you know, the global warming issues all the way so am i ready for it uh I, we're, we're half ready now after last year like we've put in place things that that 
have gone from this view that a drought is three to four months of feeding to a drought is is a couple of years and and is devastating and terrible. Am I emotionally ready for that? No, I don't think I don't think any of us are really. You know, we were incredibly lucky. We have permanent water. We have you know the ability to to get feed in. You know, I'm I'm very conscious of just how lucky that that I am in my life and in our family. Um, versus you know how other people experience the drought, but but in terms of finances, that that last year has obviously you know really helped put us on a level plan. You know, just even up, we got to pay back some money. Um, you know, I think that's a that's a lovely thing in terms of you know that where we're aiming for stock and the the transformation of the farm from you know what it was uh, ten years ago to what it is now, fifty percent farming, fifty percent. Um, native native pasture across the board. I, I did this math the other day and found this out that I always thought we always aim for twenty five percent native veg. That was that was the aim. But um, in, in thinking about this the other day, I, I just did some mapping and stuff, and we're now forty six percent of our farm is is native veg, and that's that's on a on a large scale. So that that's going to help as well. That makes me sort of a bit more confident about the drought the next drought as well. You think, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna have some some dry grass in a fairly large area to to send the cows on for a period of time anyway. And and grass that you know will bounce back. Um, What about floods? Mingan experienced a massive flood in 1990 and became quite famous for the way the community rallied, sandbagged and was airlifted. After the drought, is the extreme event of future flood much in people's minds and planning at the moment? (laughs) Speaking of trauma, thanks. Drop from one trauma to the next. One of the one of the things the, the, the modelling on global warming is that we're going to have larger larger rain events, especially summer rainfall events. So then that's going to happen. We had the one in one hundred year that that smashed us, and our house went under, as you know, about two hours before Ningen Ningen proper, as we had about twenty breaks in the levee around. Since then, we've built the levee up. Uh, we've done, you know, we, we don't keep. We moved our silos so that our silos don't go. So we 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 did some major infrastructure changes at the time, and you know that was uh, that was a, a million dollar impact without compensation at the time. That really knocked us. So that's always in your mind. Um, everything, our infrastructure, our main sheds are now surrounded by levees, and so there's definitely that kind of thing. But but you also. You know, we also garden and live down along the river, and uh, you know, I took the view that if we have to replant some of the garden or eat the, like if there are some parts that we try and make it so that it can live, uh, you know, three meters underwater for at least two months or three months, but but not everything can survive that. So you, you're trying to plan about how how that works. We've got boats and a big levee, um, a, 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 a massive dam thing that you roll out in front of the house. Otherwise, the house would be behind a two-meter wall of dirt. It's always on the cards. The good thing about Ningen is a flash flood takes three weeks. We've got some planning time always, but in really where they predict you know, over three or four inches of rain, I we get our cattle out of the river paddocks and move them to higher ground just in case. So you always think about it, but hoping it won't occur, knowing that it will occur. A question about that beautiful, specific place where you live, the garden and the long pond on the Bogan River. What do you envisage your dream for it over the next five to ten years? I think I think one of the things about what we've been trying to do is sort of get recognition for it. It's it's been the the interesting thing of the the politics around the Macquarie, you know, the wider Macquarie Basin. That Bogan is part of that. Is you know that 
people that got water license and I just close we have water licenses um, and um, but people that got rights over water mostly from sort of the 1980s onwards have progressively and, and the Burundog Dam that was put there to you know pr uh, protect a double town and to provide you know water that was one of the, the chief parts of the building of the dam um, has been you know the whole river system has been increasingly avariciously grabbed by irrigators over time and want more and more and and so so various streams are seen as inefficient um, but they're rivers like they're not supposed to be efficient they're supposed to evaporate they're supposed to be swamps and mud. and and this idea that you know that the river becomes just uh, um, um, a a a a conduit from you know efficiency um is is a nonsense and and really shows you know a, a loss of of the public resource into ever increasingly smaller private hands. And I think that's something that I obviously not a popular thing to say, but I think we have to really watch that. The, um, and, and as part of that, you know, I want us to, you know, have a, the weir pool that has been, you know, the long pond, um, you know, Ningen that's been permanent now since sort of 1940, um, has, you know, developed and, and, you know, we want to want to see that protected longer term so that, that there is a water allocation that that protects that part of things. So the reality is is that that use of the water through the the system was an amazing refugia. It's a bio reserve and a cultural reserve. Absolutely, and 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 my contribution to that, or our contribution as a family, is to make sure that you know that our part of that, you know, that that we don't crop near that we're now at least four or five kilometres away from that, and we're getting further and further away um, as as time goes. What I would really love to do is be able to fence off. This is the fantasy and fence off, you know, an area of, you know, a couple of thousand hectares where we can exclude cats and we can actually, you know, have a population of of koalas and a population of, of Tasmanian devils and quolls and, you know, just have it as as uh, as an as a as an arc. Um, so in case, you know, some of the more traditional areas get burnt or those sorts of things is that you know, the one thing we are mostly not a burn hazard, especially not in a drought. There was there was there was nothing to burn out here. It was brilliant management. Um, but but that that's the fantasy, I guess, is that is that we can you know that we could have a spot, especially cats are my great my bait noir. We eliminated cats. It's obviously something that's really important. Well, I think a conservancy in conjunction with your business management skills sounds like a very achievable dream and goal. And uh, I'm sure I and other people would like to help you realise that. That would be lovely. Richard, always good to speak with and catch up with you. Thanks very much for sharing. And here's to many more good seasons ahead, not too far between. And, and to realising net zero emissions by 2050, if not sooner. <laughs> Thank you. It's always just a treat to be able to, to put aside some time. Thanks, Seth. Bye. Thanks for listening. I hope this conversation offered some nourishing food for thought. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or you can subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay in touch via Instagram at Nourishing Matters or Foodswell Australia. As this is a new podcast, we'd really value your support. So please give us a rating or review in your favourite podcast app so other people can find us too.
Nourishing Matters to Chew On is proud to be on the Climactic Network of Podcasts and part of a collective of podcasters dedicated to inspiring positive action around climate change. Check out the other great podcasts on the Climactic Network at www.climactic.fm.